Welcome to Jazz Lab, where we discuss modern musical concepts with today's cutting-edge musicians. I'm your host, Noah Kelman. Let's dive right in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Jazz Lab. I am ridiculously excited today to have the great Rob Arujo on here with us. Um, definitely goes kind of without saying that he needs no introduction. It's really awesome, Rob, because so many of my students are huge fans of you and your music. So such a pleasure to have you here, man. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge today. And, uh, you know, just before we jump into all the nitty gritty, would you mind just telling us a little bit about kind of your musical upbringing and how you got where you are today? Pleasure to have you here, first of all. Dude, pleasure to be here, man. I've known about Noah, man. I actually heard a like little demo CD that you made in high school. One of my friends in high school, this cat named Chris Ayers, his older brother, Rich, was like a some kind of musician and he like knew you guys or knew your band or had gotten your <laughs> CD from someone. So your name's been floating around for a while. It's cool to actually sit down and have a conversation with you, man. Yeah, man. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. So, I'm, I'm really excited to do it. Of course, man. Uh, as far as like my musical past, I mean, I, I don't know. I started taking piano lessons when I was five, a little classical piano situation and uh that was that was cool that was fun uh learned a lot and continued doing that until college when i was in fifth grade i like started the whole band thing and i got a clarinet but then like a few months later i started playing saxophone uh pretty common double and that's where i started playing jazz and i did that in college, I went to school for biology and on the side got super into like, uh, you know, music stuff. I was doing a lot more jazz stuff, you know, jazz band, jazz combo. I was like learning tunes. I started doing gigs for other kinds of music, uh, and ended up graduating school with a degree, uh, and then started a grad school program, but dropped out because I wanted to continue working on music more. I find I just didn't have the time to work on music as much as I wanted to. So I dropped out of that and uh, moved to LA and started working on music. And that was a few years ago. And now I'm here. Chilling. That's awesome, man. I think a lot of so, people are probably pretty glad that you dropped out. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> um, you, tell. you, so you actually went to Cornell, right? Upstate in Ithaca. Yeah, I did. So we're so right now we are hanging with a guy who was doing a degree in some kind of science, right? Like biology or chemistry, something like that. Yeah, yeah, biology. Awesome. Uh-huh. And uh, so that's really that's really amazing. So was there any specific moment or specific kind of factor in your decision? to actually decide to pursue music? I'm just curious. Uh, I think it was probably a mix of things. I mean, all these things are, you know, it's something I had thought about for a while, but things kept stacking up, uh, you know, in support of that decision. And I finally was like, all right, I'm going to try this because it sounds really fun and I want to do it and it's fulfilling. So... 
Um, yeah, I don't know if there was like a single specific thing or moment that precipitated that decision, but yeah, I'm glad I made it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we're definitely glad too. Um, so one of the things, you know, that I wanted to chat with you about is of course your approach to essentially creating progressions. And so definitely I'm going to want to dive into some kind of musical detail and theory here with you if you're up for it. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that many of us admire about you is the combination of the really interesting and original non-functional chord progressions. Um, I kind of refer to, you know, progressions that aren't necessarily rooted in our classic conception of, you know, two, five, one, three, six, two, five, those functional relationships and uh, obviously, of course, I, I'm also going to pick your brain about your improvisation. But one of my first questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, when you sit down at the piano or whatever instrument you're sitting down, whether, you know, maybe it's the computer, what's your first thought? What's your approach to actually diving into composition or beat making? I think my first thought, I think the first step in any composition of mine that I really like is to like kind of find the core of the song and play it and enjoy that and writing is not really something that you can do without hearing it to me that i can do without actually actively hearing things and being able to you know mess with things in slightly different ways and be like all right that's the way that i'm feeling let's build something around this um so I always like sitting down at the piano. Usually before I compose, I'll just like m play piano and improvise, maybe play some standards or just come up with a kind of like simple chord progression and mess with that, run it through some different tempos, some different feels, just like, you know, kind of, kind of warming up, kind of just having fun. And then maybe you'll stumble across something that could be used as a composition and then you can kind of like build, build from that initial like inspiration, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. So sometimes it's basically just a compositional nugget that kind of appears out of just sitting down freely, letting yourself see what happens. Yeah. So actually in college, my friend, uh, Karim Hutton, who's this, fucking crazy bassist he goes by case now case music k-a-c-e uh he hipped me to like production and sold me his old interface and was like yo you got to get logic and start messing with this stuff and so i got that and just started putting on drum loops and like shedding in my room in college uh and that was a really helpful exercise because i was super into hip-hop at that time like listening to a lot of Jay Dilla stuff, a lot of Mad Lib stuff. Um, and it was a cool way to shed like a lot of the more like modern, more poppy stuff that I do. That's not like strictly jazz or classical. Uh, and that's definitely a technique I still use today to like both practice and compose is to like get some kind of drum kind of feel, get some kind of percussion going and then kind of play around that and see if I can make a part that complements that vibe like rhythmically. Hmm. And then you kind of just like build from there and parts kind of go back and forth complementing each other. So that's awesome. Yeah. So do you usually 
build your drum loops from scratch? Do you ever kind of pop into any kind of loop material? Um, or is it a very kind of organic starting from scratch process? And then from there, you start messing around with progressions and playing piano. So when I started like producing and releasing music, I was using a lot of drum loops and I would like chop them up in different ways. So I would take like maybe one four bar loop and then like copy it a bunch of times, but then go in and like chop out different drums and like nudge them around or like make new rhythms as like a drum fill uh, in places. And now I think it is much more helpful for me to kind of like make the drums like uh, part by part. Like I have a track for the kick drum. I have a track for the snare. I have a track for each percussion and kind of like uh, s synthesize those part by part and really try to like understand the groove and like what's happening there and just make make each part feel like really really tight before moving on to the next one and that also gives me a lot more sonic freedom like i can use a lot of different samples a lot of sampled material i can use like drum vsts i'm not kind of constrained to just like finding a good drum loop but at the same time i think that i want to start working on some music where i'm using real drummers um, I know a lot of super killing cats on drums, uh, so many different styles that I think would be really fun to take and try and complement in the DAW and with the keys. Um, I think production and, and keys are like kind of related in a really interesting way. Kind of the way you think about them is, is kind of intellectual, uh, and, you can really experiment and try weird shit and come up with cool stuff to do. So that's really what I like is like having the core of, of the like groove set and then just trying to fuck with it as much as I can. So it would be cool to do that over some real drums. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's funny you mention that because for me, I feel like one of my biggest weaknesses as a producer is just making my own beats. Like I really don't always love the stuff that I make. So I'm just like, you know what, just outsource it to an incredible drummer and go from there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, hey, that always works. <laughs> um, having yeah, an amazing yeah. Player, oh, yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> Dude, but, that's yeah, always so many... like the best option. Totally, <laughs> totally. Like maybe, maybe musically. It's cool to have that interplay and it's cool to have a sound that is more translatable to like the live setting. And you can definitely mix drums to sound like super loud and super lit, like like maybe even a lot of produced drums would sound. Um, just having that like kind of flexibility that like it's not exactly quantized, it's not just a loop. I mean, and I mean, kind of like the beat world is like a whole different aesthetic compared to like having a real drummer, if you know what I mean. Like the the like aesthetic of just having that loop go back and forth, just like definitely shapes a lot of things around that music and that culture, but yeah, totally. And, and as you just said, right, we can do so much with an acoustic drum loop or even if it's not an acoustic drum loop, but we can take something that some killer drummer is playing and turn it into something that totally sounds produced if we want to. Um, so kind of starting from the material of an amazing drummer is always really fun. But uh, of course, if you're an amazing, you know, drum producer, why not go for that too? Um, but that's awesome. Yeah. So 
how did you, you know, kind of shifting a little bit into the, the left brain industry talk, what was your journey into kind of establishing yourself as a pianist and composer? What did that look like for you? I'm, I'm really curious because, you know, I've noticed yeah. all these different shifts in kind of, you know, marketing and how people, I suppose, appear on the scene. And I feel like from my outside perspective, you had this really natural path of basically just being like, here's what I do. I'm awesome. Check it out. And people just loved it. But I'm really curious, you know, did, was there more behind the scenes or was it actually just this totally organic process? Well, for me, music was like, I mean, I cared about it a lot, but it wasn't like something that I was stressing myself about being a professional over because hmm. I was doing a completely different thing. I was studying biology. Uh, so music was almost like my, like the fun thing I got to do when I wasn't doing that, when I had some time to like play some piano instead of just like reading books or going to class or something like that. Um, so that's how like posting on social media started again. My homie Karim, uh, was like, dude, you got to get an Instagram. There's a lot of really killing music stuff happening over there. And I was like, not aware of any of that stuff happening. I was super ignorant about that. I had been on Facebook. I was in this group jam of the week. A lot of cats know about that group. Uh, just that. like a group on Facebook. Actually, this cat, uh, who lives in Portland, Farnell Newton started that group. And it's, it was just a Facebook group where he picked a standard and every week everyone would post their little like interpretation or a little chorus, like shedding over it. Um, and I was posting there and Karim told me about Instagram. I got that. I started posting there like, senior year of college and then i took a gap year and posted a lot that year and from doing that i started like meeting other musicians it's like we talk about networking we talk about like in the past musicians would go move to new york or la because that's like how you network that's how you get your music in front of people that's how you like make like make actual business relationships and get calls for gigs it's because those people know like this guy can play this stuff. He would be good for this gig. He would be good for this opportunity. And that's kind of what Instagram is now. That's what the internet is now is like the community. I mean, obviously there's over a billion people on Instagram, but like the music community, the music world is so small. Like everyone shares good shit and bad shit with everybody. Like everyone knows. So if you do something crazy on the internet, like a lot of people are going to find out and you'll start getting people like hitting you up to do tracks and to give them lessons and to do all this other shit. So I started, you know, just like taking any opportunity I could because it was like really fun. I wanted to see what, you know, do I like teaching? Do I like all this other stuff? And started doing more sessions, started doing more collabs, built up a network. It like, it like happens kind of like slowly. You know what I mean? It's like step mm -hmm. by step. It's like climbing a mountain or something like that. Um, but. Yeah, I, I don't know if there was any, like, one single event that, like, made, like, changed me from, like, an amateur who was doing it for fun to, like, a professional who's, like, making money on it. Um, it was it was just, like, doing a bunch of shit, and then some of it worked out and led to new opportunities. Most of it was, like, whatever. It was fun. 
So you got to do it. I, I think you really got to do music or any like artistic pursuit because you like it. Because the only way you're going to get those like good opportunities, those big opportunities that actually lead to things is by like doing a bunch of other shit that doesn't lead to anything and like practicing. It's like a lottery. And if you don't actually enjoy it, then you're not going to really do it for that long, for long enough to find some kind of success. Or at least most people don't. Some people get like super lucky. But for most people, it happens like after many years of like working and honing your craft and like, uh, you know, just tr- like trying things, trying and failing and ultimately succeeding at something in the end. So that's yeah, a that's, really good point. I guess I guess that's what I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great point that I feel like people don't talk about enough. And it's just that idea of this kind of, I think it kind of comes from back in the day where you might get your break and get signed to a label or whatever. But there's this whole idea of, you know, I put out some music and then everything just builds from there. And I think most people understand that that may not be how things go anymore, but if, if ever really, if they ever really did, but you know, I think it's a really interesting yeah. point you bring up, right? You know, it's about consistency and what it kind of comes down to is being okay with failing. That kind of classic cliche mantra of the only difference between yeah. a successful person and a, you know, quote unquote, less successful person, however you define success, is that that successful person was totally willing to just go out and fail over and over and over so in other words, it's really just kind of a, a quantity game, right? It's like if I failed a thousand times, for every thousand times I fail, I'm going to have, you know, that one huge success that propels me to the next stage of my career or whatever. And if you're out there and you're too scared to show what you're doing because you're afraid of failure, then you're never going to get to that thousand number and you're probably never going to get that one great success, you know? Um, yeah, that's a very interesting point. I think there, I think there's kind of like two sides to that debate. There's like one side which says, all right, you really need to like, uh, be very intentional and be very thoughtful. And like, they would say like quality over quantity. And I think that ultimately that, that is almost arrogant to say that because I think that most artists, even like the best artists, like don't, really know like what that they create artistically will resonate with people the most before they like release it or let people see it and uh, there's a lot of cases where artists will take a song that almost didn't make the record and just like shove it on there and that's like the most popular song on the entire record there's many documented cases of that so i think with with the arts consistency and and quantity like obviously you know you can say that you know you should take lessons you should practice your skills you can do that all you want that's just not how music is we have cats who like don't have any conventional training in music who are creating music that is like really resonating with people and they are like making a music business their own music business based off of that music. So, I mean, I can't say, I mean, I think it's good to, to try and become as good as you can, but I think what's more important to view art as like a means of conversation, like a means of interacting with people. And if you have something compelling to say, and if you can come up with a way to express that, that resonates with people, that's, that's really what matters. And I think a lot of theory is like uh retroactive too. It's like, 
only descriptive, you know? Like, we think that music is good because we've already had that music. That's the music that our culture is built on. And that's what forms, like, that's the rules that we have, like, been trained naturally, subconsciously trained listening to music all our lives in the West. So, like, that that theory explains things that we think are good doesn't necessarily mean that, like, that's the right way to do things. Although it is, like, a valuable tool, uh, I think it's worth investigating at least a little, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Totally. I took a lot of theory classes in college and that shit, there's some heavy shit in there. There's some really great ideas in there. Um, but yeah, consistency, as you said, is key. Like quantity is key shots on goal. You don't know what's going to really resonate with people before you release it. And like you also by releasing and creating so much content, like learn so much about creating content and what kind of content you want to create and your content will change over that amount of time. Like all content creators say the same thing. Like they make so much shit before like the stuff that they actually really like starts coming out and that's just like the same as an instrument you can't just like sit down not knowing an instrument at all and like create the best song ever like you don't need to be like classically trained but you need to like mess with the instrument a little and like learn it in some way like learn whatever you're doing in some way so that you can like express intentionally with it and uh yeah but consistency is key let's stick with that that's the that's the takeaway totally man i mean there were key. a lot of beautiful <laughs> takeaways in what you just said I, one that kind of struck me which really plays to the whole consistency thing is almost learning to not be overly judgmental of yourself and your own music because you know at the end of the day at least if you want to be a music professional right if it's completely for yourself then you know, judge how you want. But if you want to be a music professional, that means putting your music into the world and it might affect people in ways that you yourself didn't anticipate. And so, you know, if you're overly judgmental of your own music, then it's almost strangely arrogant in a way because you're kind of predicting how other people will feel about it. It's almost like that that same thing of like someone comes up to you after a gig and they're like, man, you sounded amazing. And you're like, no, no, that was terrible. You know, and it's like that's that's actually an awful thing to do because you're actually making you're saying a like you're wrong. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you're judging their musical taste. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I really resonate with a, a lot of those points there. Um, Yo, and a lot of creators, I mean, especially me included, suffer from like uh, like judging themselves too hard, and it affects their creative output or their experience making music. And I find that. Like, that's kind of like the beauty of being at the start when no one's really paying attention to you is you can just like fail in your own little corner and no one's like looking at you. And then once you get to a certain point, you feel like if you fail, then you're like on stage, you're on a spotlight and everyone can see you. So like, dude, it's like the best time to play music when no one's paying attention because then you can truly just like do anything and work on the exact thing you want to work on and not give a shit but retaining on a certain level of like that attitude like i'm not going to give a fuck regardless i don't care if anyone's paying attention to me i think is like super important in being a musician because it's impossible to please everyone like there's literally no artist that everyone likes in fact every famous person has a lot of people that hate them in society like people who at at the very least don't think that they are talented 
maybe they don't hate them but they don't really understand so like you're not like who you're don't go you're gonna go into walmart and ask people who herbie hancock is most of those people aren't gonna know so if herbie hancock was like oh i'm not famous enough i need to go get more famous so that more people can like my music then maybe he wouldn't have been herbie hancock you know uh so just like stay in your lane do the thing that you do best and like figure out what you do best and what people like what resonates with people and just do that you know totally agree man that's that's an inspiring message for sure i think a lot of people will be uh inspired to really hear a lot of what you're saying it's all really um it's it's honest right we're i love that we're just having this super honest conversation about you know how the the reality is you know you can't judge yourself too much you you have to play to that classic well you don't have to but i think there's this classic adage again you keep you keep bringing up these classic thoughts in my head um of you know it's better to be loved and hated loved or hated even than just kind of nothing in the middle yeah you know what i mean and so if you're doing something that's really pushing some kind of boundary or is really making some kind of honest, deep commentary, there's a good chance that a bunch of people are not going to like it. And that's totally okay because it's probably a bunch of people also are. And that's part of the beauty of our world with the internet now is we can very easily get our stuff to that group of people who are going to like it, um, which is exactly. Really cool. Yeah. um, And that's really, I think, the biggest change that has occurred in the arts as a result of Internet technologies, like because you can distribute it everywhere and there's ways to like pay for it directly through the device and all this other shit. You can really build a niche community and make like a healthy it's like an, uh, an emerging middle class of artists i think there i think there is with like all these new technologies where like you can really uh make a career off of like it's just like instead of having to supply art to everyone at the same time you can supply art to only some people and make it hyper specific and it provides a certain level of value to them that mainstream art doesn't provide and those people are willing to like pay a premium for that and so like that's all you need to do as an artist in this century is like exploit that and find your niche. And yeah. the only way you do that really, the, the, the way to find your niche is just consistency. It's like keep making shit and see what works. And then like, and I think there's a difference between, uh, judgment and analysis. I think it's very good and very healthy, um, and very stimulating to, like think about people and have thoughts that maybe might be could be viewed as judgmental if expressed in the wrong way or through 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 like viewed through an uh, improper lens but i think it's good to like be critical of yourself be critical of other people try to try to analyze try to be like why do i like this why do i not like this i think you should go into every musical situation or listening to any music and not judge and be like maybe if you come away being like i didn't really like that be able to say something good about it. Like that's kind of like the muscle you want to be working out, not the like emotional uh reflex of like, I need to put this person down at my level. So I feel better or I need to uh bring myself down because I don't feel good about myself. Uh But really like try to analyze things and be like, maybe this person's better than me. Here's like why they, why they're better than me. Let me try to bridge that creative gap or analytical gap in some way. And 
I think like analysis is key to art. Um, and that's kind of why judgment is such a big problem because it's like, it's such a blurred line between like, you know, constructive or like deserved criticism of some kind of art and like actual judgment. Usually you can have statements that are both at the same time. So I think it's a fine line you have to walk as an artist to where, you know, you don't, you don't want to be judging yourself too hard and judging other people and all that shit, but you do want to be paying attention to like what's going on and what you think and what your opinions are. You know, you can have opinions. That's, that's okay. But I think just understanding that their opinions is like super important and not, not kind of like falling into the trap of believing their fact or like having other people around you all agree. So now it's a fact or something like that. Like I think keeping an open mind is important. That's a really good point because in a weird way, you mentioned the other side of the niche, right? You get surrounded, you know, if you're lucky, right? You, you have the opportunity to be surrounded by people who love what you do and totally agree with it. But then that might also come along with, you having some responsibility to be like, yeah, but also this is cool, right? This other thing is cool. Keeping that open mind um, and not yeah. becoming overly judgmental. And I, and I think, you know, when you're really happy with what you're doing and confident in what you're doing, I think it's much, much easier to not be judgmental of others because... Exactly. Yeah. The, the reality is sometimes our judgment maybe comes from our own internal insecurities right at least uh at least mine sometimes do and often have like in the past especially when i when i was a competitive you know up and coming working jazz student you know i would i would definitely compare myself to people way too often and it could very easily lead into yeah compare yourself to like someone who's like 50 who's been playing this music like listening to it since they were born and playing it professionally since they were like 10 and like that's not a it's not a productive exercise like you got to think about like how do i get to the next step you can't be like i deserve i deserve to be that it's like the arrogance (laughs) you know and we all have that as little as little boys as little students little young teenagers and young adults of of jazz and of music and you kind of like grow out of that at some point and stop kind of like taking everything so personally you know beautifully said absolutely man and I, yeah, I, I, I'm having so much fun talking about this, and I think so much of what we chatted about, people are going to find really, really inspiring, um, especially hearing it coming from you. But that said, I, I, I want to transition into some uh, some more musical stuff, some more directly. Let's yeah, it. let's let's get to the to the keyboard a little bit. So, so the the theoretical. Yeah, the theoretical. Let's get back into the theoretical, <laughs> um, the post analysis here. And um, yeah. so <laughs> one of my favorite things about your playing is that you approach improvisation with certain dissonances that I just find really, really compelling. And one of my, one of my kind of, well, you know, I shouldn't say it's mine. To me, one of the well-known and most important things about, you know, playing out, so to speak, whatever you want to call that, you know, playing dissonantly or going into substituted or reharmonized progressions is the landing, right? How do you kind of get back in and justify that other journey? Like sometimes I'll, I'll hold up my fist and be like, you know, there's the linear path, which is the obvious path or whatever's written on the sheet music. But then there is kind of the, the other pathway that surprises you and, and gives you a new way to go. And I think that you you do that really well. Sometimes I'll say, if you are just playing randomly, you might just kind of 
bop around and then suddenly teleport to the end. And it's not really, it's not justified. It's like, well, you can always just teleport to the end. So weaving a different interesting path and landing there in this surprising way is really cool. So I, I talk about this concept of dissonance formulas, which just means like, oh, okay, so mm. I'm playing the one major, maybe I'll just improvise a half step above or something like that. And um, yeah, so didn't mean to go on too much of a tangent there, but I'm really no, curious, please. you know, how much you've thought about this stuff, you know, how much is what you're doing just where your ears take you, how much of it has been stuff that you've experimented with. And after that, I might even be super interested in, in hearing you show some of it or uh, even talking about one of your solos from your record. I have um, one in mind that's, I think, very, very well known and popular that my students Ooh, love. Which one? <laughs> uh, Moonrock. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. That one is, yeah, I just did that one. So I can definitely talk about that one. I mean, dude, I think, uh, one thing that I actually got from like listening to Jacob Collier and I, I took a little lesson his, uh, you know, this guy, June Lee, yeah. who transcribes a lot of like Jacob Collier stuff. He at one point was giving lessons and I took a lesson from him, uh, cause I was like really interested in like, you know, what this guy's opinions were on like Jacob's techniques. Cause he had just transcribed so much of his stuff. Obviously you just like see, you know, if there's any patterns, you, you, you spot them. That's how you spot them. It's just like repetition. So, uh, yeah, I talked to him and a lot of it, uh, like June was like, a lot of it is voice leading. It's like, if you think about how the voices are moving, um, that's kind of what is the interesting thing about the chords, not really the identity of the chords themselves, but like how the voices are moving com compared to each other. Um, and then how the, how the, how the chord resolves. So I thought that was a super interesting concept. And also I, uh, transcribed some Robert Glasper. I listened a lot to Robert Glasper and listened to, uh, the way he improvised, um, especially on this one record in my element. Mm. I really like that. I still need to really dig into that a little more. Um, but I don't know. I noticed that Robert Glasper was using like a lot of triads, a lot of triadic stuff when he was playing out, he would choose a certain triad, um, compared to like the, whatever the key, um, whatever the key at the moment was, he would pick a triad like, like B major over D minor, for example. Mm. And so I just started experimenting with playing different triadic vocabulary over different chords of other material I had. And, I think that kind of those two things form the core of my outside playing, perhaps, where I think a lot about like self-contained shapes when I play outside, I'm thinking like within a scale. And I think that playing outside is really cool because you are kind of bending one kind of like side of the square. You know what I mean? If I don't know, you could, you could, there's a, there's like so many different ways you could break down like what a note is or what music is or what anything like that is. But maybe some properties are like, what, like, what's the rhythm? What's the, what's like the key? What notes are being played relative to each other? And you can like really fuck with one and keep the others consistent. And it's almost like, like magic to a lot of listeners because 
they're like this shouldn't work but it does in some ways it does in some ways it doesn't and it's also just like a different way to create tension uh and play with like creating tension and resolving tension so i don't know i basically just piled on a bunch of buzzwords there but um no that's that's awesome I mean, yeah, yeah i think i think i think pretty intuitively i i'm pretty experimental with that shit <laughs> i mess i mess around with it and find something that works and then i play that i'll say that awesome and it is it kind of like per song do you kind of shed a progression and figure out here's some of the the different triads that maybe work over this or here's a pattern that i really like to do around this section or something like that or is it all pre-built oh, for in sure. the practice room Dude, absolutely. I mean, I think that like really truly learning a song is like playing it for so many hours that you can't play the stuff that you would normally play over it anymore because you're so bored of it. So you have to try and play new stuff and you start actually creating new vocabulary that's specific to the song and to the changes. And that's really what like learning a tune is. So like that's kind of one of my favorite things about digging into a tune and like trying to learn how to improvise over it and play other kinds of kind of stuff over those changes. It's like, like learning more intimately, like what kind of outside stuff works or, um, stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of one of what, one of what, that's one of the things I like a lot about like composing and producing is it's like really a workshop. I can like have a set of changes and just like mess with it for literally months and come up with like cool shit to do over it. Um, like on the on the project on the on the track or live or something like that so um yeah i love that man um it's funny you say that because one of the things that i talk about with my students that i i also heard kenny werner echo was this idea of you're better off really learning one song than you are you know constantly expanding your repertoire when you haven't really mastered that one song or the techniques on that song and i think part of why that resonates so much for me Mm. um, is that I remember that one of the most beneficial things I did and this wasn't necessarily anything anyone told me to do this was sheerly out of my own impatience I would practice some idea or I would practice a classical piece or I would practice a certain pentatonic lick or something like that and after like Mm -hmm. 15-20 minutes I would get bored my parents who had to hear me practice all the time would just constantly make fun of me for this. I would just immediately go and start <laughs> playing a 12 bar blues and just improvising yeah. using, you know, whatever exercise it was I was I was messing with and I would just probably play fast a lot and and just do like random stuff. So there was always this kind of um I mean, maybe tension and release, right? In the practice room of the tension being I'm practicing this thing that I even if I find it interesting, the practice of it is a little boring, you know? And then every single day, I would kind of, without realizing I was doing it, then practice really internalizing it and applying it by going to a set of changes that I knew so well that I didn't even have to think about them. And all I had to do was think about making something new out of what I had just been practicing. And I think that's a step that so many people kind of miss in the practice room um but uh I, so i think a lot of people who come and take lessons like think that there is like some kind of knowledge you can have that allows you to make music and i think that 
nothing is further from the truth, honestly. You can make music with no knowledge, and you can have all knowledge of music and not be able to make music. So I think it's like a physical thing that you have with like an instrument or with some kind of like vo voice or some other kind of thing. And like being able to do that thing without thinking about it and in so many different ways and just like you know so many things about it that like you don't have to think about it at all and you can think about a completely different thing that's like what art is all about because that's where the actual creativity like you can't be creative when you're thinking about like oh where are my fingers supposed to be to make this sound you cannot be thinking about what sound you want to make because you're thinking about your fingers so i think that like that's that's such a big thing is like mastery you know and that you can you can you can play a tune. You can play it so many different ways. You can do so many different things over it. Uh, you can imply so many different things over it that, like, I think really what mastery is, it's not like about any sort of like objective thing that's like a standard you're meeting. It's much more about like a, a, a depth of your interpretation of that song and an honesty to it. And that's what playing a tune for like so many hours like does for you you actually know the tune you know it in so many different ways you know so many things about it. it's like like a record you can listen to a record so many times and each time there's like a new thing that you learn from it there's a new thing you're picking up there's a new way you're listening to it and that's kind of like what i've always loved about music i was always like uh i had like one song that i would listen to on like repeat uh, for like weeks in a row or like a song that I would always listen to in the car when I was driving in the car and being able to like take a record and just like rinse it and repeat it just keep going like I would there are some songs I would listen to like the first minute and then like rewind it and keep doing that over and over again because I you ever do that the iPod so scroll constantly <laughs> scroll back <laughs> yep Yep, I did have an iPod, man. We're 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 getting up to that age where we're 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 starting to be like the VHS Gen yeah. Xers, where we're reminiscing about fucking old tech that Gen Zers know nothing about. Totally, fucking, man. <laughs> you had a you had a wheel on your iPad. What are you talking about? Oh yeah, I had the wheel. It was great. I would uh, no, no the, <laughs> I would. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're. I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah, the zoomers. See how old I am, man. I don't even get jokes anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would. I would constantly be like you know, Oscar Peterson, Brad Meldow, you know, Glasper, just wheeling it back to the solo, wheeling it back. Okay, it's at one minute, you know, 14 seconds. All right, every time, just wheel it back. And, you know, like you just said, getting to the point where I knew that solo so well that I could just, I used to, you know, make my friends super angry when I did jazz camps or whatever, because they would turn on a record yeah. and I would just start scatting the whole solo. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was super annoying in retrospect. Um, but being yeah. able to do that is really important because that is kind of one Absolutely. really great way of internalizing vocabulary and and really getting it in your ear. Yo, this is what I tell all my students. I tell all of them to sing, and I did the exact same thing as you, uh, learning solos like with your voice, to where you can scat along with them. Because like transcribing a solo is great. I think transcribing a solo, all that is, is like what, like writing the notes on the paper, right? But when you're actually like playing along with the record and trying to match like the exact timing and the phrasing and like the touch and like the, 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 the that's where the music is, the musicianship. That's where the music is. The notes are just like a vehicle. The notes are like an idea. And then the music is like a feeling 
that is carried on that idea. And different kinds of music, different kinds of feelings are conveyed with different kinds of ideas. But I do think those two things are like in some way like separate, like the phrasing and the touch are like what determines how musical something is. And like, that's really what is like, that's, that kind of legitimizes the notes you're playing and like vice versa, the notes that you're playing legitimize like the, the musicality of something that's like truly masterful. I think it can only, it can only be something that's like really worth studying if like all those things are considered and those things are like working together. And so you want to get like every element. It's like, you can't just like get the notes and play it in a completely different style and expect it to have the same impact or to like work the same in your head or in someone else's ear. So I think like being able to sing, I mean, singing is not only like such a strong link. I mean, dude, we use our voices so much. Like we can, we can do scat singing, maybe not like note accurate, but we can like do rhythms like very subconsciously. Like you can, you can scat rhythms. So if you can scat rhythms and that's already something you're getting that you're not really working on the piano for, that's like your internal timing, your internal phrasing, like that shit matters, bro. That shit matters on the instrument. You're like shedding something up here. Like music starts up here. It's all, it's all starting up here. Cause if you don't have that internal time while you're practicing, right? You're not going to really hear when you're playing with bad time and you're not going to be able to practice that and work on it. Whereas if you have really good internal time and you know exactly like how someone should be praised and then you play it and it's not that, then, you know, it's not that let me work on this. Let me practice it. And like, that's such an important thing. Practicing in like a smart way, practicing constructively where you're able to like accurately assess like, all right, here's how I'm playing. Here's how I want to be able to play this thing. Like, how do I get from point A to point B? And then like working on that little by little is like so much more efficient than just like going in and just like playing without thinking, which is, I think, important to do too. That's a whole different conversation. But uh yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on that. Like, dude, singing is one of the best things. Singing, singing scat solos is like the best thing, bro. Absolutely. It's that internal practice thing. Sometimes, uh, you know, if I have a student who's particularly, you know, eager to improve and and we get into that whole 10,000 hour discussion and they're like, ah, you know, I've only done a thousand hours, still got 9,000 to go. And I'm like, well, one amazing way that you probably haven't thought about to add those hours. And this totally counts in my opinion is all those hours that you're just off doing other things during the day, but you've got a solo going in your head, or you've got some kind of a line that normally you can't quite grasp the notes of. And if you keep doing it in your head, you start to hear those notes. That is possibly actually more important than sitting and doing it at the piano, because now you're actually hearing like some, some big... Uh, arpeggio or like the internal voicings of a chord or a progression you're like oh I could sing those on the inside that is totally part of your 10,000 hours maybe an even more important part than uh, than a lot of people realize I think oh a hundred percent two two things to say about that one I went to a master class once as a kid uh, this classical pianist, I forget his name. He's for super sick, but he was like, yeah, I do maybe like two or three hours a day at the piano, but then I spend like four or five hours a day, like away from the piano, uh, practicing because I'm it looking at a, the score. It wasn't a guy named Frederick Chu, was it? Oh yes, it was. You might've been at that master class. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, but yeah, he was, he, I was like really impressed because 
like I do think it's true you can you can accomplish so much away from the instrument by thinking about music music is such a mental game like there's so many things to analyze about music and think about music and practice music even you can practice certain aspects of music or improvisation or rhythm uh just like where wherever whenever um so i think that like especially with listening this is true you can really like amplify how how much you're getting out of practice at the piano based on what you're doing away from the piano like what you're doing like what music you're listening to how you're listening to that music what you're thinking about when you're not when you're not listening to music like and that has such a big effect on practice and also i think that the only way to actually improvise something intentionally and with like good phrasing is to like be able to write it first right you need to be able to almost like uh i don't know the term the equivalent of visualizing it in your head conceptualizing it maybe you need to be able to hear it and then if you can hear it then you can write it down in a way and if you can write it down and get the notes down then you can practice it right but it all starts in the yeah 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 audiation might be might be the term there but it all starts in the head. Like if you're coming up with new licks in your head and you're like, whoa, that was a crazy lick. And then you go and like somehow transcribe it in some kind of way. You just like kind of trial and error, guess and check all the notes. Then you have some to practice and you have new vocabulary that came from your head. It came from your brain. It came from your, you know, the creativity. So you can do so much work away from this room, bro. That's completely correct. I agree with you a lot. Awesome, man. Yeah, I totally yeah there's there's so much i've even kind of purposefully done that especially in moments where i've had like chronic injury or something like that just continuing to practice in your head but um i actually wanted to jump over would you be down to go back to the the whole moon rock dissonance conversation and uh, would you be down to walk us through kind of some of the way you think about that song maybe even show us some stuff in terms of what you're doing dude yeah sure i'm i'd be down um so like the chords here are pretty simple um let's see i think the chords for the solo section were something like um like c sharp minor uh to some kind of like a flat dominant maybe to like in like an f sus or like an f kind of like f sharp dominant f f sharp sus f sharp dominant kind of zone and it's kind of just like sitting there Um, so there's this like one part of those changes in that loop that kind of like wants to go somewhere and that's like kind of this dominant chord I feel and this this chord is resolving down uh to to whatever that that resolves it um let me listen real quick yeah sure make sure I'm getting the right chords and just while you're while you're doing that I'll uh switch to my kind of teaching view here. I don't know if you can see it on your end or not, but um, I'll kind of maybe demonstrate a tiny bit. Um, Or I guess you were doing more of like a... Yeah, because I'm like changing the pitch in weird ways on this song. Yeah. Uh, 
so there's just that one it just kind of goes like C sharp minor A flat 7 then like F sharp sus F sharp uh, 7 flat 9 um, and then that just resolves instead of resolving to like the one you could call it like the B major it just kind of loops back to C sharp so I think that one of one of the main ways I'm thinking about the soloing on this tune is like um, taking this five because this has like the same harmony this like F sharp sus has the same harmony as the C sharp minor and then this is kind of like a dip outside of that but it comes right back so this is really where like all the tension is right so I'm thinking a lot about like A flat seven and like resolving in different ways to that stuff but um, with this solo I guess I, I was definitely playing outside a lot. I think a lot of the lines in this solo, I'm like starting in a key, maybe in A flat seven or in, uh, in C sharp minor. Um, I'm a man with me with the end harmonics over here, bro. I don't know. Should I use, should, I what do you use? D flat minor and A flat or what? See, cause I always think it's easier for me to think about C sharp and easier for me to think about A flat. That's so funny. Yeah. I, so I, I'm a I'm flat be thinker. A, be a monster. Just D flat, I don't know. D flat just doesn't just doesn't do it for me, man. D flat doesn't. Do, I need it. I need that C sharp minor on the on the <laughs> on the real book you. charter. I'm <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much all of these licks start in a key uh, that makes sense. That's congruent with the chords that are going on, and then they take like a shape that's being played, and they kind of like move it outside of the key and like plane it in some way, and then come back in the key. Um, so that's a lot of what I was thinking for that solo. Um, cool. I can like pull up the MIDI. Oh man, that would be, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I'm, uh, and while you're doing that, I'll, I'll kind of demonstrate. I think I got a better handle on it now. So for this kind of, uh, C sharp minor nine to this kind of ace, uh, a flat seven with the sharp five. Um, and then this kind of, I can't remember if you said G flat or F sharp uh, sus 13. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. F sharp sus 13, and then it kind of moves the the, so the G sharp and the B kind of like move down to G and B flat for this like uh, dominant flat nine vibe. And then it cycles back around to C sharp. I need to play down here. Yeah, I never played in that key because uh, I actually used uh, this plugin to change the pitch on oh, that song because then I can automate it. So instead of having to like play between half keys um, and like physically change the the like pitch, I can like automate it to change like gradually over like a measure, for Whoa, example. That's cool. Um, and and I can like program it to be like in between notes and shit like that. Um, so that's awesome. I, I wouldn't recommend doing that on music though. <laughs> you run into some, you run into some difficulties. Uh, like no one can play over your shit because it's out of tune and everyone's like, what, what key is this? And what are you doing? <laughs> I actually did a couple of videos with, uh, my piano a bit detuned. It was, um, originally just being tuned up, but then I was like, this is a really cool sound. 
And so I did like a sample pack with the detuned upright um, before I, I had it tuned up to pitch and I was like, kind of missed the detune. But this is awesome, yeah, so you got the... Yeah, I can solo. Ooh. The way you just went out and back in there. <laughs> so, what am I doing? What am I doing here? I need to pull up, uh, let me turn my Maybe up to like F. Yeah, just, uh, if here we're in like, you could think of it as like B major. Uh, like C sharp minor to me is kind of like the two mm -hmm. and F sharp is like the five sound. And so it's looping and never resolving to the one. And you, cause you have that like kind of like six, you know, that three, six, two, five, one meme and jazz. Mm -hmm. Like if you do the three, uh, with like as E flat minor, it's basically just like the chords of a three, six, two, five that right, are like right. looping in it, looping, looping it like in a different order. And you get that like same effect of like kind of just sitting in a certain place. Um, but yeah, this first lick is literally just, uh, uh like kind of like b pentatonic and then mm. like c major pentatonic so just like half step half step away that's one way you could think about it cool um, and this scale up bro holy shit <laughs> isn't it funny analyzing so yourself funny. yes this looks like So it's like F F uh, F major scale, F major scale here. Some like uh, oh, I have no piano sound there, but uh, some some like that. Then some kind of movement. Um, so in a way, it's also kind of like D minor, like it's it's sort of got that half step above sound. Oh, absolutely. This, this whole, this, yeah. Exactly. And then it resolves back in with like, with like being in key with like something that's, I think that's, uh, partially what makes it work is like being so explicit with the melodies on both ends because you're really maintaining kind of like that side of the square or whatever you want to call it. Uh, where like the rhythm the rhythm makes sense the melodies like make sense within themselves like even if it's a half step away it's still like pretty simple like melodic stuff within one key and so like i think we definitely recognize subconsciously like we might not know the pitches but we can like hear like the difference between the pitches like in distance that definitely contributes to the sound i mean obviously it does but like uh people can tell when it's like within a scale, even if it's not in the right scale, like it, you, uh, you can keep what you're playing within a certain scale and that will give it a certain sound. I mean, that's like one-on-one, you know? So I think that that's kind of why the whole meme of like learn things in all 12 keys is so important because, uh, it's honestly, it, it might be useful to like take a standard that you know really well in a certain key and shed it in a key above and below and as a drill be able to like go 
uh, above on one measure and then like in key on the next measure and then below on the next measure and then, you know, and being able to like jump really easily between neighboring keys and stay within the key without thinking about it is like a really important uh basis i think that's one of like a really uh, a really good way to approach uh playing out i think that's a really like uh really good a really dependable outside sound there's a lot there's so many colors of playing outside um that's that's one of the that's one of the more easy easier easily conceived ones perhaps easily more easily uh understood ones uh, sure. versus using like a completely different scale but i'm yeah, using that technique a lot in this solo yeah, one of the things I love about thinking of it that way is you can get a bit formulaic with it, right? So you can be like, all right, D flat minor, sorry, C sharp minor, um, and be like, okay, this kind of F major sound sounds great. And you can almost like be like, I'm going to get this in my ear. And actually, I, I kind of love that just like as a chord. It's so weird. But yeah, like, right. Then you're, and one of the things for me that you did there that's so awesome is just how you immediately like completely naturally resolve back in like a exactly and the way let me see the exact note i'm doing that on uh e f g a b flat c c and then c sharp and then d sharp so it's like f major i need to go the octave up It's mm. like uh I'm just immediately like I'm getting to that C and I mean you think about like you you just like play any scale and compare it to like a parent key that you're like superimposing it over and just see like what notes are the same. So like if we're in C sharp minor, right? Uh maybe like the B flat is the same. Maybe you could see that as like the sharp 11 or uh the 13 or whatever mm-hmm. of C sharp minor. But, like, most of these notes are not in this chord, right? But then any of these notes are a half step away from the notes then. Because, like, as far as, like, major and minor scales go, like, uh, scales with seven notes in them, it's almost impossible. You're almost always on a note in that scale or a half step away. So, again, like, the ability to go just, like, one step up or one step down is like useful for more than if you're just playing in like one half step above or below. It's useful in like a much more like localized way where if you're on a note and you can go like move it a half step up, then you're in the next like set of notes and that's covering all the notes. So well uh, said. being able to jump, I mean, I don't know if I thought very hard about like, I'm going to play F over this chord specifically. I think I was like, I want to play a scale that is outside and where the notes are different and then end inside the chord because that sounds cool. I just fucked with that for a little and came up with that. So again, it's like there's two ways you can think about it. You can like have a set way of doing things and you know that like the sound will be this and then do it or which is kind of why I like producing so much. You can really like take your time and experiment with shit and come up with like the exact sound you want or find a new sound that you didn't even conceive of before and kind of like build off of that and learn from that. And that's kind of one of the one of, that's kind of why I went into music. I mean, I really loved playing. Um but I don't I didn't think I wanted to spend like all day every day like playing or gigging or being on tour. But when I found out about producing and started like making 
beats and messing around with things in the DAW was like super engaging to me. It was super stimulating. And so it, it was like uh, a different way of processing music and making music and thinking about music. So I really like kind of exploiting that to my advantage to be able to like do things on the piano side that maybe I wouldn't be able to do like live on the gig or just like if I went into the studio, like what I'd sit down and play on the first time, like being able to mess around with it and get a certain sound is like really cool. And that's what I saw a lot of producers doing with their, with like their sound design, not with like, you know, they're not really playing shit with crazy solos on it, but they're like taking a snare drum and messing with it like a hundred different ways and like moving the most minute things around in the beat to like just get it to sit right. And I really identified with that philosophy and started doing a lot of that kind of shit on my music. And it, it's like kind of, it's super fun for me, man. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's fun to like just have something like this and think about it a lot. Let's see, what else is going on in this solo, bro? Yeah, this shit is just like planing. <laughs> right, what is it? Fucking, uh, uh, just diminish shit. Uh, what are the next? I don't know, I don't remember the exact notes I'm playing. Uh,. This person, I'll go over this like little planing thing. There's a. Uh, it's just like diminished right there, right? Yeah, taking taking this diminished step and moving it up by a whole step, and then like enclosing it or something. Right, and then and then like changing the shape slightly. Yeah, mm. it's like that C that C diminished and then it goes up to D. But then mm. becomes like altered. So it's like And then it ends in a In, uh, yeah, kind of like in C major, you know, uh, right, C, right? Yeah, C, uh, C major, A minor, something like that. I, I mean, don't ask me why I resolved there. Well, um, you're just, yeah, you're just doing again, it it's naturally, like, right? Well, F is really close to C. I guess it's like those two scales are really far away from C sharp minor. Um, I guess C has more in common with C sharp minor than F major does, but. Yeah, it's just like outside. It just yeah. sounds outside. So well, it's so it. cool because I think the way you structured this lick is, you know, it'd be really easy to just be like, you know what I mean. But you're not you're not doing that. You're actually adding in different patterns and then you're switching up the pattern to give it more of an actual, um, you know, kind of linear contour and progression, and then ending at that F major. So I guess you know the kind of A diminished, sorry. <laughs> to the D. And this is all, is this all over the C sharp minor still or is this a different spot? 
Uh, I mean, this is like kind of irrespective of the chords at this point. There's okay, like a okay. loop that's going on that uh, is like kind of going back and forth. And so in the beginning of the lick, I'm starting by playing like very explicitly in in the chords. Um, hmm. I'm actually doing like, uh, let me zoom in here. Uh, it, might, it might be hard to hear through the mic, but... Um, basically, I start by playing like A flat seven material, right? Mm. Uh, right. Mm. Yeah. So I start in like that C sharp minor, like. Yep. Exactly. It's just like that kind of like altered kind of like vibe, you know? And then I do uh, some bebop shit down to this A, which is like still in the chord because we're in like, we're in like that A flat altered, like that flat nine sharp nine kind of vibe. Hmm. And then I, and then there's this shape, right? And I think one cool thing you can work on as a soloist, if you're trying to like, fuck with your solos is to like take a motif and mess with it in some way it's like keeping one thing constant and then changing something else about it so like keeping the fact that there's four notes right and then like changing where the pattern actually comes in by like introducing other notes so it's it's like right so instead of just instead of this it's like and then changing like one note to be a different interval, right? And then, right, planning that, and then keeping that. And I, that's like a super, I just know that's like just bebop shit. And that's like, I'm not thinking about like, oh, I'm gonna do this. It's just like, all right, I get to this and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna play. Like, this was really like a weird sound, like this weird, like kind of half diminished seven sound or whatever it is. So I'm going to play something super basic. And that leads into like that vocabulary, which is just like super easy to do. But then I guess you're ending on E, which is like a note in C sharp minor. It's like in, in the chord. So maybe that makes it sound better. Yeah, it's something like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think I don't that's, know. it's like a monumental difference. The difference of changing up the motif in the middle of that line as opposed to just doing like the repeating pattern it's it's literally the difference between <clears throat> feeling like oh yeah i hear this and i'm developing it as opposed to oh yeah i practiced a pattern you know what i mean um so that one yeah, little change is that. so important i need to do that a lot more that's something that i want to explore a lot more in my improvisation and in my music in general um but it's something that like works incredibly well in like a jazz setting like taking a having some kind of motif that is like recognizable i mean it works for the audience and it also works for the players when you can like take that motif and change it and they can like perceive those changes and like mirror them in their own part or in in what they're doing that's like it's a really rewarding thing to like hear and to be a part of um and a really like foundational tool a lot of players use in their improvisation like i think motifs uh, motifs are just like they're just like melodies, right? They're just like, it's like a melody, but not on an entire head. It's like, just like kind of a melodic idea. And that's like, what else is improvisation? If you're like, you could be just like playing the scale 
of whatever's happening, right? But like that doesn't sound as good as like having a certain melody, a certain melodic idea that develops, you know? I mean, that's what all music is. Like they take some kind of idea and they use that and develop it in different ways throughout the track. Everything from pop to classical to jazz to rock to like hip hop to electronic to everything. A motif is like what makes a song. It's like that thing you can hear like a second of a song. Like what's like the one or two seconds of a famous song that you can listen to and you instantly know like like the fucking uh Or like the beginning of fucking Fireflies by Owl City, even like you mm. just know when that synth comes on. Like, all right, this is what's this is what's happening right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So having having a motif, it's like it's recognizable. It's what makes it, it's what makes a composition a composition. I think you know, or like a solo, like some some melodic, you know, like something interesting besides just like oh he played the changes. It's like there's something to actually think about in there totally uh, man but yeah. i i want to i want to shed that there's so many different ways you can do that bro it's so it goes so deep man yeah absolutely i mean and people are working on so many interesting things right now i mean and actually that that brings me to uh another question i have for you and, and we can actually wrap up soon here i'm not gonna lie i'm actually getting super Dude. hungry <laughs> um, perfect but, uh, yo you gotta eat bro yeah gotta eat gotta eat it's super important but um so my question for you was is there anything either musical or even in like the musical technology space right now that is kind of blowing your mind or that you're that makes you really excited about kind of the future of music well a lot of people uh are complaining about tiktok right now um but i actually think that the direction that tiktok is pushing social media in is like really good um i think that um, there are more and more tools being created every day for people to like communicate in various ways and they all have their own unique uses. And I think that, um, social media is kind of transitioning towards like being algorithmic, like totally algorithmically driven rather than like you going onto Instagram and being like, I'm going to follow these 20 people. I want to get content from these 20 people. Now the app is saying like, oh, you liked this video with these like uh, topics in them. We're going to send you, we're going to put videos in your feed that have these same topics in them. And based on your reaction to that, we're going to like try to learn you and understand you and be able to match you with content that you'll actually like and, and be engaged with. And I think that like, I think it's just, it's the same thing with like streaming with a lot of artists complaining about streaming and there are definitely valid criticisms. Um, it's definitely a different business model. It's hard to compare. You're comparing apples to oranges. Streaming, I don't think, is is supposed to replace buying records and listening to records. Um, I think that, like, the music industry has changed so much because of internet technologies. And I think that we have to adapt to that. Rather than complaining about things, we have to, like, try and find new and creative ways as, like business people as marketers you know i mean that's kind of the biggest difference is like now we have access like because tiktok uh, is making instagram and all the other platforms move towards some more algorithmic model and that's what's happening on the streaming side too it's going to be a lot easier for creators who know what they're about and have their niche 
to find people who are also about that and to make communities around that. And I think that's like the most important thing, uh, finding people, getting your content out there to as many people as possible with Instagram and TikTok and all that shit, and then bringing them into your community onto like Discord or Twitch or whatever else you use, coming to your shows, buying your merch. It's all, it's all a pathway. So I am really excited that I do. I'm really excited to see cats that I know that have been posting on Instagram for like years uh finally because of the new model have videos that blow up have videos with like millions of of views that are being used in like thousands of remixes and they're able to like take a song that blows up on tiktok and release it and then have like people go to their spotify and listen to that song and listen to their other music and go to their shows because of that and i think that's like an incredibly powerful tool and in the past you would need a label to do that and labels today they're telling their artists get on tiktok they're signing artists they're uh releasing songs that have uh blown up on tiktok like that's where that's where shit is right now that's where all the labels are at that's where the interest is at because that's how mm-hmm. like and it's, you know say what you want about tiktok culture all that shit certainly problems there but it's really exciting that there uh is increasingly more and more power being put into the hands of creators to reach their audience and to be able to like uh monetize their audience however they want you don't need to like leave it up to like a team of 20 marketing experts and legal experts to like you know get your shit on the radio you can you can get famous you can get music listened to by anyone anywhere if you like do it right so i think that's i think that's pretty cool um i'm excited about that i'm excited about vr and like more immersive technologies for like watching people live i think that like live streaming is a really exciting thing that is only i i think it will be uh i think it will replace television I think it will eventually replace cable television because like that's the only thing cable television has over like Netflix and streaming services. They have actual live events. So everyone has their Netflix subscription. They can go watch anything on TV on Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus or Paramount Plus or whatever the fuck app you have. And you can watch live stuff on Twitch. Soon sports will be there. Uh, So many more eyes will be on there. And Twitch is almost like way it's like the most authentic social media platform in my opinion i know i'm going on a tangent no not at all with all this but it's really it's it's really cool to be on twitch or any streaming service be able to like be doing your thing and interacting with people in real time it's way more satisfying than like i'm gonna try and game the instagram algorithm to like get likes it's like now you're just trying to like talk to people and entertain them who are like there and that feels a lot better uh than doing like so much social media so i think like social media is really exciting uh a lot of really cool stuff happening there and i think that is the foundation of any music business i mean say what you want about musical development about the satisfaction the reasons why you do music the fulfillment you get i'm speaking strictly from like a business perspective if you want to make money in music social media is the absolute foundation of that and there are other ways to do it, but social media is your way to do it. If you're like, if you don't know people, like social media is going to be your way to, to get to get to know people. That's how you get to know musicians is you get good at music and then you let people know, like, here's the kind of content I make. Here's what I make. And people will eventually like find you and follow you. You maybe got to hustle, go post in groups, uh, go do whatever. But, uh, 
yeah, if you've got if you've got something to share and people are interested in it, then they'll start paying attention and other professional cats will start paying attention to you. And if you take advantage of that momentum, then you can have like any kind of career that you want in the music industry. Um, it's really all like connections based and and the Internet is where you can most easily form at least initial connections. I think it really helps to have like, you know, you meet a bunch of people online who live in a city and then you go to that city and you have a bunch of sessions with them. And that really like locks it in that that's really like, all right, now we're homies. Now we know each other. Now we have real life experiences and we know we vibe in person. Now we can do shit. The, the internet stuff is almost like an intro to that shit, but like, it's a really good intro and it gets you in touch with a lot of different people potentially. So I think that, uh, if there was anything I could offer, any wisdom for my career, because I do my own thing musically. I don't know who can get who can get whatever from that. But if you're looking to be a professional musician, uh, figure out what you do best and do it a shitload on social media and get as many opportunities as you can from doing that and get as good as you can at that, because that's that's the foundation of everything else. Amazing, man. So. Well, thank you so much. That's that's incredible advice to everybody. And uh, speaking of which, where can everybody follow you on social media? What are your what are your handles? On oh your man, Twitch, Instagram, everybody, TikTok? everybody, almost <laughs> almost all of my handles for for Instagram, for Facebook, for uh, Twitter, for Twitch, for TikTok. It's Rob Arousal, R O B Arousal, A R O U S A L. That's my uh, my makeshift name right now. So come come catch me on Twitch. Come catch me on Instagram. I'm uh, releasing more shit. Uh, you know. As, as we go, I'm, ex- I'm accelerating my, my rate of completing things and putting things out. Got a lot of cool stuff planned for the rest of this year and next year. So come, come, uh, come get suited up, guys. Awesome. Chill with Rob, bro. Can't wait. Can't wait, man. Well, thank you so much for being here. Really, really appreciate you imparting your wisdom, um, on, dude, on no, thank you, man. And, oh, I think it did. did and all this, just, all this shit is just opinions, man. It's just, just like what I think. It's not right or wrong. Just like, if you have, if you're, if you the listener, you the viewer, you get something from this, great. If you think it's bullshit, then great. That's also true. It's just all personal. It's all like what, whatever you can get from it. So move forward and uh, do your own thing, cats. Totally, man. Just like music, a hundred percent. That's awesome. Well, dude, thank yeah, you man. so well, much. Yeah, thank I'm you gonna... so much for uh, finally getting a chat, bro. This was a good time, bro. I had a good time. Uh, we got to do this again sometime. Let's, yeah. Let's, uh, let's make some shit soon, bro. Yeah, absolutely, man. We're going to make that happen for sure. Um, and cool. Well, thank you so much, man. I'm going to sign things off here officially. Yeah.